When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. In today's episode, we are going to talk about why we can overly attach to teachers and other people in our life, how to know if our burnout is turning into depression, and how to get through trauma processing without using unhealthy coping skills. I'm also going to talk about why we can sometimes want to keep our eating disorder why OCD can squash any insight that we've had, and how to sleep when we're struggling with PTSD. And without further ado, let's jump into, oh, actually, I did want to say that I got a comment with a ton of likes that said that they would like me to do half and half, where half of the podcast is based on thumbs ups, and the other half is just randomly selected questions. So we're trying this out uh, for this week. This will be our first week giving it a go. I would love your feedback in the comments or, you know, any thoughts that you have about it. We'll try to get to everyone's question. I always do my best. So hopefully this helps with that. Okay. Now, without further ado, let's get into question number one. This question says, hey, Katie, I think I overly attached to my teachers who also happen to be my research advisors. I really wish they could be my moms. I constantly seek their validation and approval, and I want to make them feel proud of me. You get the idea. How can I overcome or how can I become more aware of this? How can I stop trying to fill my parents' void by pushing other people into it? Thanks in advance. Now we have another add-on to this that says, I'm currently in school right now and almost every year I have had one specific teacher that I'd get extremely attached to. I uncontrollably think about them all the time and often play out scenarios in my head of helping, of them helping or comforting me. I hate it so much and I feel so ashamed of it. I don't even have an actual reason. My parents are lovely and have never been neglectful or abusive at all. However, I struggle with depression, anxiety, self-harm, and eating disorder thoughts, all of which I felt like I could never tell my parents about due to cultural reasons. Could that possibly be playing a role? Why do I get so attached to my teachers and want them to know my struggles and comfort me? Great questions and a lot to unpack here. Now, we've obviously talked about this before, like having um, attachments to teachers, to coaches, to anybody in our life that isn't our parent, kind of with the purpose, whether we realize it or not, of filling the void that our parents have left. Okay. Now with the first component of this question says that she really wished they could be her moms, like that her research advisors or teachers, things like that. Now that all comes from the fact that we did not get what we needed from our parents growing up. And that could be for various reasons. It could be uh, abuse, whether that is, you know, physical, sexual, emotional abuse. They could have been emotionally neglectful. And so we're looking out to someone else to kind of acknowledge our pain and uh, be there for us and support us. Whatever the reason, we didn't get what we needed when we were growing up. And therefore, we look to other people to fill that void. And that's essentially at the root of it, why we attach to people in our lives who are kind of like adult or parent figures, but they aren't our parent, okay? And um, 
it's really adaptive, right? It makes sense. If, if the parent that we had didn't give us what we needed, um, then we go looking for it and we try to figure out another way of getting that need met. So it makes total sense. And I, you know, we understand it. However, it can cause more upset because we can't control other people. We can't ensure that those adults in our lives actually show up in the way that we need. We could be harmed again in in the same or different ways that we were growing up. And so the way to stop doing this, the way to go out into the world and not look for other people to fill the void that our parents left is to do inner child work and potentially trauma processing. And they can work hand in hand. I do have an inner child workshop available at my web, on my website, katiemorton.com. You can go over there and grab it. Um, there's also great books in my Amazon store. Go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash katiemorton. I have uh, inner child books that I I like and I've used. Um, and even when I was working on that workshop, I utilized them as well. Um, those are all great ways to start doing this. Now, when I talk about inner child work, a lot of people wonder what in the world is that? Now, I have videos about it on my channel, but for the sake of this conversation, just know that often when we're growing up and we don't get what we need, okay? So let's say our parents are emotionally abusive. So we get yelled at a lot. They talk down to us. They talk trash about us. Nasty stuff is happening all throughout our childhood. Leaving us or leading us, I guess, rather, to feel like we're too much. We don't have a right to take up space. Uh, Our needs and wants aren't important or, like I said, are too much. Um, We can be people-pleasing because we hope that by making them feel happy and calm, then they won't hurt us anymore all sorts of things, right? So let's say that's what's going on. As we grow up, we take those behaviors and those patterns and those relationship type of blueprints into our life and we act them out, meaning we maybe seek people who treat us the very same way or we're an extreme people pleaser. And that means that we aren't really showing up authentically in our relationship because we're saying yes to things that we really mean no. So There can be all of these kind of ripple effects. And as an adult, what we need to do is we go back to in our heads, whether it's visually, whether that means we get a photo of ourselves at a young age or have an old video or we talk to other people, we take an opportunity to consider what it was like for us when we were, I don't know, let's say eight years old or something. And we go back and maybe we write letters to and from eight-year-olds us. Maybe we journal about what we remember it feeling like. And the whole goal of inner child work is to have our child self feel seen and heard. And then we move into, I believe, kind of like the second step of that, past seen and heard, and that is to allow our our child self to feel safe and important. And all of those kinds of messages, the feeling safe, feeling seen, feeling heard, all of those messages that we should have received from our parents, we either didn't or we didn't receive them in the way that we needed we as adults can give that to our child self. I hope that makes sense. I know it sounds really woo-woo and some people are like, I just can't. Can you journal about what it was like when you were younger? Because that's still inner child work. The whole goal is to give our younger self a voice that they maybe didn't have. And again, to help them feel seen, heard, you know, safe and important. And so we go back almost in our brains um, utilizing either, like I said, photos, videos, things like that, or even just letters back and forth. We can write from our child self. One of the tips in um, the book that I utilized when I was putting together my workshop said to write 
in your non-dominant hand as a child. So for me, that'd be my right hand because I'm left-handed. And then adult me writes back with my left hand. And so it gives that vibe of like, this is childlike writing. This is adult writing. And however you can tap into it, you know, it's good to to start a conversation with our younger self, because if we don't at least peek back into our past, we often are allowing it to dictate our future. And so the beautiful thing about inner child work is we look back as a way to heal and support younger us. So adult us doesn't ha- knows that it doesn't have to act in those ways again to try to get those needs met still. I hope that makes sense. And so that's how you fill that void is through that inner child work, through connecting with younger you, helping them feel seen and heard safe and important. And whatever that might look like, there might even be very specific wounds that need to be healed when that could be like the trauma work in therapy. If there were traumas done to us when we were little, we're going to want to process that through and understand what it was like when we were younger, when it was happening. Because sometimes adult us can come into a conversation and think, well, I should have just ran away. I should have just said no. And we forget what it was like when we were younger, that we didn't have that ability. We didn't have a maybe a safe place to live. We couldn't just run away and we didn't know any better, right? There's a lot of things like that. And so anyways, starting those conversations, helping us heal, working on the trauma or whatever's behind it can all be beneficial and allow us an opportunity to fill that void ourselves so that we don't go out into the world looking for someone else to fill it, okay? And as far as the the comment on this, the only differentiation that I'd wanna make is that they said that their parents were lovely, never been neglectful or abusive at all, yet we struggle with all of these things, depression, anxiety, self-harm, and eating disorder thoughts. And you said you can't tell your parents about it. I would believe that even though our parents look good on paper, and it seems like they've done everything that they should, and I'm not shit-talking your parents, not even a little bit, but I have a feeling that there's some emotional neglect going on here because you said you didn't want to talk to them about anything due to cultural reasons. And generational reasons and cultural reasons can prevent us from connecting with our parents and feeling like they're there to support us. Especially if we're uh, from an immigrant family, a lot of members of our community have told me that there's so much pressure to succeed that that's all the energy in the family is put on is like succeeding in this new country, wherever you've immigrated to. And that can leave no space for some emotional support and crying and getting comforted by a parent which is all very important to our growth, just as much as obviously the success portion. And I would argue one has to happen in order for the other to happen. And so I wonder if your parents just because of the culture that you were raised in kind of don't believe in, you know, quote unquote, mental health issues. Those aren't real. They have that kind of what I would call old school viewpoint, or they don't feel like it's good to talk about our struggles. I mean, I grew up in a, what I would call like a very traditional kind of country type of family. And a lot of it was like, oh, you don't talk about your problems to other people. Like that's like airing your dirty laundry. It's not appropriate, right? There are a lot of messages we hear when we're growing up. And so I would argue that that might be what you've experienced and the reason that you don't feel like you can go to them. And therefore we do have this void, even though your parents were there, we have a void because emotionally they weren't. And so we go seeking it in other people just the same. Okay. I hope that makes sense and is helpful feel free to ask any follow-ups. Also, like I said, I have the inner child workshop on my website. I also have an attachment-based workshop. So if you find yourself struggling with attachment issues in a lot of ways in all all types of relationships, that's uh, there and available for purchase as well. Let's move on to question number two. It says, hello, how do I know if if what I'm feeling is more related to burnout 
or is entering into the realm of depression? Great question. I'm not necessarily sad all the time, but I am at a point where I am just down and don't really have any interest in doing things anymore because I feel I have no energy or motivation, which I know sounds a lot like depression. But at the same time, I have a high stress and high expectation type of job that consumes a lot of my time and energy, which definitely also plays a role too. Is there a way that I could be experiencing both at once or does it not really matter? And the treatment, quote unquote treatment, would be the same either way. Great question. First, let me define what burnout is and what depression is. Now, when we're struggling with burnout, the important thing to remember is that it occurs when the effort that we put into something isn't at least commensurate, meaning equal with or um, less than the reward that we get. So the reward that we get from what the work that we're doing should always be higher. And the reward isn't just financial. It can be, and that's usually a piece of it. But the reward can also be um, like as a therapist, like the fulfilling component of seeing a patient do really well or getting to reach out and talk to all of you each and every day. Like that fulfillment, that is my reward. And that is so always so much greater than the effort, right? But when our effort starts to go up and the reward stays the same, we can have burnout symptoms. And burnout occurs because of that, the extreme amount of work, meaning that our nervous system is pushed into what is called our stress response, aptly named, right? I'm feeling stressed. My stress response is triggered. Now, our stress response is fight, flight, freeze. Now, when we get super, super stressed at work and then we can't leave, so we can't flight and we can't like beat up our boss or something or yell at them, we can't fight, we go into freeze. There's also a fourth that's fawn, but for the sake of this, let's just talk about freeze. Um, we go into freeze and freeze means that we're triggered in the stress response and there's no action we can take to get that out of our system, all that queued up energy of the stress response. And so our limbic system, which houses our amygdala and other parts of our brain that are responsible for our stress response, those are firing constantly. Now, they're not made to fire constantly. They're made to be a short-term thing where we have a stressful situation take place. We decide, fight, flight, freeze, right? We do that thing and the stress response goes away. It's a very short-lived thing. Let's give it a maximum of like a few hours, ideally, okay? But when we're in a stressful job, our, we're in fight, flight, freeze, potentially freeze for like months, maybe years. And so that wears out without, I mean, there's a, a more scientific way to talk about this, but for the sake of this conversation, just know that it kind of like wears out the paths or the roadways between different parts of our brain. Meaning I've like run this path of like feeling overwhelmed to uh, maybe spending a lot of money drinking, maybe uh, feeling really overwhelmed and crying, maybe self-injuring, whatever behaviors. And I've run that path so much, but it's like a rocky path and it's really rough. And so now when I go, when I get really stressed, it can like almost ricochet into something else where instead of, let's say we were doing a healthy behavior, like, oh, I'm in a journal. Instead of journaling, now it's like, ooh, when I do this now, I just feel really impulsive. I want to, I want to spend money or something like that. And so it can cause a lot of distress and it can cause us also to not be able to concentrate um, because those pathways are really worn. Uh, struggle to concentrate, um, difficulty recalling information. We can get extremely irritable and start kind of resenting that work or that effort that we have to put in. And so we can be really, really easily agitated. And those are just a few of the things, okay? Now, 
That's what burnout is. Now, depression happens when for most days, for at least two weeks, so most of the day for at least two weeks, we feel a lack of interest in the things that we used to be interested in and overall have a very down mood. And then there's a bunch of other symptoms like difficulty or changes in our sleep, changes in appetite. Um, uh, Let me think of others. Difficulty concentrating. That was funny that I had to think about that one. (laughs) Um, uh, Irritable, thoughts of suicide. Those are just off the top of my head. I'm sure there's a few more in the DSM. But So you can see that there is a lot of overlap. Now, the thing about it is that depression doesn't always have a trigger. Burnout always has a trigger. But if burnout goes untreated for long periods of time, and long being, I know, a very like unclear word, but essentially, if we don't treat our burnout and it's going on and on and on, it can turn into depression or anxiety or other mental health issues, essentially because we're running on empty and kind of pushing our nervous system to the brink. So for you, we have to consider, is there an exact trigger and we think it's stress that created the burnout? Or have we always kind of struggled with depressive symptoms and did it come out of there? Or the third option is, has our burnout been happening for so long we haven't treated it and we think it's turning into depression? Now, you said you're not necessarily sad all the time, but the fact that you're down and don't really have any interest in doing things anymore I'd be curious if it's just lack of interest or like you said, if it's because you don't have energy or motivation. So doing it feels like it's going to take a lot because see a depressed person would be like, that doesn't interest me. I don't even want to do that. A burnt out person would be like, I'd love to do that, but I just don't, I'm so tired. I don't have the energy, right? So where is it kind of coming from? Because it could be either. And I know it's really convoluted and I wish this answer was like, it's this, but again, one can lead into the other. It's not good for us to be stressed out and held in our stress response for a long period of time. It can lead to depression. And to to answer the final component of this, it doesn't really matter which one it is. Your doctor or uh, psychologist or therapist will probably want to diagnose you and ask you questions to kind of do what we call a differential diagnosis, like which one is it? And we'll go through those check boxes to kind of figure it out. Um, only because we might need that for insurance or if they're going to offer a medication as an option, you know, it's important that you're properly diagnosed. But when it comes to the therapeutic component, since we think burnout is happening, I believe that the treatments would be very similar because if it is moving into depression, the root is coming from burnout. And if it is burnout and it's not depression, it's still, we're still going to treat it that way. Does that make sense? I hope so. And so I really believe that for this particular situation, the treatment would be the same. But if we were trying to decide if something was like, say, depression or anxiety and not one causing the other, the treatments might be a little bit different there. And it would be important to differentiate those. But when burnout can lead to depression, you've been burned out for a while, it doesn't really matter. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. It says, hi, Katie, I just started reprocessing trauma with my wonderful therapist. My problem is that just with that, with just one session of this, I have become unraveled. My emotions are so intense that I'm wanting to cope in unhealthy ways, such as cutting, which I haven't done in a long time, and having suicidal thoughts of which I have attempted before and am angry that I lived. I feel like if I continue with the reprocessing, I won't make it because I don't trust myself to be safe. I want to continue to reprocess because I feel like I'm finally being heard and I want to make my life worth living. Yay. My question is, 
How do I continue to work and remain safe? I am home alone 90% of the time, and I feel like I need to be in a safe space to do this, but I don't feel like I have any options. Do you have any suggestions on how to proceed? I'm in so much pain and I'm barely hanging on, but I need to do this. You may say that now is not the time and I need to wait until I'm more stable. When I started, I was stable. Thank you for being you and caring. Of course. Now, I don't think you need to wait, but I do think you need more resources and coping skills because you're left unraveling. Let your therapist know this is happening. What this tells me isn't that you're not ready to process the trauma. It tells me that the prep work before it wasn't either completed or done at all. You're left like reeling and coming unwound and you should feel like it's okay to feel dysregulated for a little bit, but you should feel like you have coping skills and resources and things you can utilize to help you come back down, help you feel more stable, help you be in yourself and be okay. Yes, it's going to take some practice. Yes, it might take time. And that might mean we have to pause a little on this processing right now, but that doesn't mean you can't do it. It's just we're going too fast, too much, and we don't have the tools to help us better cope with all that's coming up. And that's this key piece. Like in exposure therapy and in trauma reprocessing, this key piece of treatment is what we call resource building. And that really just means helping you come up with things you can do when you want to cut or take your own life. What else can you do, right? I I work with eating disorder patients a lot. So it's like, what can you do when you want to use food or your body to cope? What else could we do that's not so harmful? And what we need to do is need to practice those things over and over and over, trying a bunch of different ones. And if they don't work at two in the morning, then they go on the daytime list. And if they don't work in the daytime, we get rid of them and we try another one. And that's why I had that video, 25 coping skills. Um, I should probably do it, redo it, but it has 25 coping skills. I say 24, and then I ask everybody to put one in the comments. So the comments are filled with a ton of helpful ideas as well. They're both process-based and distraction-based check out that video and come up with some ideas and make a list of like 15 that maybe would work. Try them out. If you can't find 15, start with five. Let's build from there. But what I want you to do is mainly let your therapist know this is happening and tell them you just feel like you need more coping skills. You don't really know what to do after the session because you feel so overwhelmed and dysregulated, which is normal. But then there's nothing to do with it, right? You, What do you take with that dysregulation? What do you do with it? And you don't have anything to do with it. We have no skills. We have no tools. So we need to build those up. Okay. You'll get there. And it is normal to f- experience this. And that's why it's important for us to have those skills on board already. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. Question number four says, hi, Katie, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking says, my question is, what if I want to keep my eating disorder? Hmm. What if the pros to keep it far more uh, than the, the pros to lose it? Okay, got you. It helps with my complex PTSD symptoms. I would challenge you already right now when you say it helps with your symptoms. What do you mean by helps? Do you mean um, causes other symptoms that you get to focus on? Pulls all of your energy into it so you can't think about anything else? Like when you say pros and it helps with those symptoms, I need you to define that a little bit more because helps is such a loose term. Okay, so it helps with our complex PTSD symptoms. And even though I do not, not, not see it, it keeps me small. Hmm. 
Like being underweight gets me closer to being invisible. It helps me hide. I can hide in more places and it's comforting, question mark. I've had anorexia signs and symptoms starting at four, but wasn't diagnosed until I was eight. I come from a family where out of all the kids, there's three of us, I was the only one who was physically and mentally abused and neglected of basic needs. I am the bad girl. I've been in treatment for my eating disorder more times than I'd like to share, and I only started to talk about my trauma more recently. We'll get into this. Nobody knew, but lots suspected it. The physical abuse started when I was three and went on until I was about 27 or so, and I'm, I'm 33 now. My eating disorder keeps me safe, and I can't imagine my life without it, even though it has almost cost me my life several times. What happens to people like me? What happens to people with lifelong long anorexia and trauma? What happens when you don't tell anyone your trauma until two and a half decades after it started? What are the odds of getting motivated to leave the eating disorder behind when it's been your life? Thank you, Katie, for your wonderful work and wisdom. We need more people like you in this world. Oh. Okay, a lot to unpack here. Now, first of all, the reason that it doesn't feel safe to get rid of your eating disorder is because you haven't processed the trauma. So that's okay. Give yourself a little compassion and just understanding. It is the only way you know how to cope with that. You've been, you were unfortunately, I'm so sorry, you, your, par- oh, your parents, shame on them. I'm so sorry you went through this, but you were abused. You said from about the age of three all the way to 27, you've only been in a, a neutral or maybe safe place for six years, 27, you're 33 now. Give yourself some breathing room. Your eating disorder helped you survive. Thank thank it for that. We don't have to shit on our bad coping skills in order to move past them. We can thank them for their service and then also acknowledge, hey, you're kind of like taking my life and you're ruining things for me now. I appreciate you back then, but right now you're not serving a purpose anymore. We'll get to that point. We don't have to get to it right now. My encouragement for you would be to, I don't know if you're in, oh, you said only started to talk about your trauma more recently. So I would assume you're getting into therapy. That's my goal for you is to get into therapy and to stay in therapy and to try to come up with some coping skills to to trial run instead of your eating disorder. Are they going to work right away? Absolutely not. Are we going to hate them? Probably. Is our eating disorder going to rage and get louder? Definitely. It's all part of the process. You've been in treatment a lot of times. I've had patients in treatment like 15, 16 times and more. There's no judgment about the amount of times. So you know the drill. But the reason that it still serves a purpose for you is because we haven't worked on the reason it exists in the first place, the trauma, the abuse. And I hope that you're in a safe place now and you're out of that traumatic home. And I might argue that we should for a while at least not see our family. You can maybe see your siblings on their own, but I would encourage you not to see the people who abused you while we do this work because it can be extremely dysregulating and overwhelming and just re-traumatizing. And I don't know who needs to hear this, but you don't have to go home during the holidays and be abused. You don't have to go see them. You don't have to do that. I know people feel like, oh, it's the holidays. It's time to spend with family. Yeah, if our family is not abusive, then sure, it's healthy, happy, wonderful. But if our parents were you know, physically and mentally abusive, it's not going to be a safe place for you. And I give you full permission to spend it with friends or your chosen family, right? So that's really where I think, where I think you're at. That's why you don't want to leave your eating disorder. That's why you're not ready to give it up. I also have videos about like, what if I don't want to get rid of my eating disorder? I have a lot of older videos about eating disorders. I should probably get back into them, maybe do like a 
a whole series on them again. But that's why. And it's okay. I can't tell you, probably 99.9% of my eating disorder patients come to me when they don't want to get rid of it. They just come to me because it's distressing and other things are boiling over and their eating disorder isn't cutting it anymore, right? It's It can get to the point where the symptoms of the trauma still come through and they're like, ah, what do I do now? So don't judge yourself. You're doing the best that you can with what you have. It's very normal. Just keep talking about that trauma as uncomfortable, as overwhelming as it feels. Make sure you have some healthy coping skills to trial run. I have my, like I said, my video with about all those options. Let's come up with some. We're not going to like them, but it'll be okay. We'll get through it and know that slowly but surely we can untangle ourselves from our eating disorder, but you have to give yourself time. Like you said, your whole life has been wrapped up in it. So it's a huge part of who you are and we have to like tease that out and help you learn who you are without it. And all of that takes time. So be patient with yourself. You're doing the best you can. I'm really proud of you. Hang in there. But what you're going through is to be expected. It's completely normal. Okay. I know that I wish I had a better answer for that, but I just want you to know that that experience is is very common. Okay. Moving on to question number five, it says, Katie, my question is about OCD and insight. I have a diagnosis of OCD. If you don't know, OCD stands for obsessive compulsive disorder, okay? So I have a diagnosis of that, but sometimes I don't actually think I have it at all. There are rooms in my house that I cannot use because they are contaminated and I can't get them to be uncontaminated no matter how hard I try. The person that lived here before me was a heavy smoker and the place was coated in nicotine to the point that it was ingrained in all the woodwork and silicone around the windows, etc. Yes, I know. Hard to get cigarette smoke out of things. I have cleaned and cleaned them, got professional cleaners in and redecorated numerous times, but I still can't, can't use these rooms. My therapist said it's my OCD that's causing the problem and that I lack insight into it. But I think anyone would be the same with the disgusting rooms. It's hard to know what's real when I feel the contamination all around me, but no one else does. Also, I don't have any compulsions because I can't clean it away no matter how hard I've tried. So that makes me think it's not OCD either. Hmm. Any thoughts on getting past this would be great because one of the rooms is the kitchen and it drives me crazy that I can't use it. It's interesting. I have a couple of questions because it does sound OCD-ish. I have a, another, I, I have something I want you to bring up with your therapist, but let's dig into OCD first. Now, the way that OCD itself as a part of an anxiety disorder umbrella I put OCD in there. The way that it works is that we had this obsession. Now for you, the obsession would be contamination that things that smell like smoke are dirty and contaminated, even if we've sprayed bleach water over them and we logically know that it's clean. We obsess about it. We obsess about cleanliness. Now, most of my OCD patients actually aren't clean. It's more obsessions about checking, meaning like checking that I turned off the stove, checking that I unplugged my hair straightener, checking I locked the door, checking I closed the windows, those kinds of things, checking, checking, checking. And it can be to have to be done a certain amount of times, right? And then also, um, you know, people will have like just certain numbers, like rituals, like numbers of times they have to do things. Those are the most common that I've seen. But for some people, it's about contamination and cleanliness. So that could be your obsession. Now, the compulsion would be to do the cleaning. And when we do the compulsion, that anxiety buildup from the obsession goes down. So that worry that like, oh my God, I left the stove on. Oh my God, I left the stove on. I go and check it the certain number of times I have to check it. And I can go to sleep or I can leave the house for work. Okay. That's how OCD works. 
And it goes round and round. We start again, right? We start the obsession, the anxiety starts to build again, and we have to do it again. Or if we touch the stove and turn it on, then we have to go through that process all over again. But for you, you said you can't clean it away no matter how hard you've tried. So there's no relief. There's no, the compulsion doesn't assuage your anxieties at all, does it? Even slightly? Because that's how, that's when I would say I think it's OCD. But I'm interested in this. It can't be uncontaminated no matter what. We can't decontaminate this apartment. And I I have questions because this sounds like a delusion to me. A delusion is a firmly held belief. Yes, it's part of psychosis, but spoilers, we can have psychosis as a part of a lot of different diagnoses from anxiety to depression to anything. Uh, there's postpartum psychosis. Um, yes, it can be part of schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. I'm not saying that you have that, but it, this definitely sounds like it's teetering into what I would call the delusion space because doing the compulsion doesn't make it better. So I'm like, hmm, I don't know if it's OCD, right? These are things I'd want to rule out with you. That's why I want to bring this up with your therapist. Say, hey, I asked this weird therapist on the internet. She said, because my compulsion doesn't make the anxiety lower, that it sounds like a delusion. What do you think about that? Talk to them about it because it's something that we're going to have to figure out. And then I also have a question because I have had patients like this in the past What's our history with contamination or cigarette smoke? Do we have a history with it? Um, Because I've had patients with trauma in their past who feel like they can't get themselves clean or certain areas in their home clean because of trauma. So I'd want to kind of rule that out also. And that's why it's important to talk about these things with our therapist and, and why therapists should take their time when diagnosing. Because I don't know if this is OCD or not. It might be. There might be other things that I don't know about, right? That's why it's just important to bring it up with your therapist. Ask them about it. Tell them as many symptoms as you can think of and let's see what we can come up with. Because once, and I know some people might, might be like, Katie, but does it really matter if we're diagnosed? Why would you want to force that to be a thing? I'm not forcing it, but sometimes when we have a proper diagnosis, then the treatment is easy to try to put together. Because if we know it's a delusion, then we know what our treatment option is going to be. If we know it's uh, coming from trauma, then we know treatment for PTSD, right? So we want to figure it out so we can make sure that we're treating you properly. But I don't, because I don't think it's OCD, I don't know if this, I'm going to offer you some tools that are OCD based, but this might be why it's not getting any better for you. Because the thing about OCD is that it, we're supposed to put off doing the compulsion. So if this is OCD, if you don't clean, the anxiety will build and then it will go away. That's technically how OCD works. Now, it's obviously there's it's more complicated than that. But if you were my patient and this was the issue, you're like, oh, I have OCD and I feel like I need to clean, clean, clean. And then by the time I'm cleaned, I have to leave the house and I don't have any time to make breakfast, let's say. Then my encouragement would be for you to to stop cleaning and try to put it off, just try to start cooking little by little, you know, and having ways to bring your anxiety down. Like maybe these are tools and techniques that you've practiced in therapy, everything from breathing exercises to full body shakes to whatever helps. A cold, cold water on our face, deep breaths, anything, right? Whatever helps you feel better. Then we do those as we try to push through and not do the compulsion. And slowly but surely we prove to ourselves that it will go away and it gets better that way. That that's actually is slowly but surely gets better. So and maybe this could involve medication too, if our anxiety is so incredibly high, then maybe that could take the edge off and that would allow us to 
engage with these obsessions and compulsions less and less. That's another potential option. But overall, tell your therapist about it. Let them know that you're struggling with this and that you maybe don't think it's OCD. Maybe it's a delusion. I don't know. Um, And let's see what you can come up with because, yeah, it does. Like you said, I don't have any compulsions because I can't clean it away. So I just, I really just don't think it's OCD. But let your therapist know. If you don't agree with your diagnosis, know that it's always okay for you to speak up and say that it's yours. You don't have to just accept it. It's like getting a second opinion, right? We don't just have to go to the doctor and he's like, well, I think you just have a common cold. Here's an antibiotic. And you're like, no, I think it's strep throat. Can you please test me for strep throat? It's okay to advocate for ourselves. It's okay to see another doctor and get another opinion. Let your therapist know that you feel like it's not OCD, okay? And see what they think. And final question, question number six is, I can't sleep. I don't want to close my eyes. I have panic attacks if I'm woken during the night. I can't stop and relax at all. And I find myself doom scrolling social media until I'm absolutely exhausted. I know I shouldn't be on my phone before going to sleep. When I was a little girl, my bedroom was not safe. I don't feel safe. I feel like I'm trying desperately to avoid having to stop. Keeping busy uh, gives my mind something else to focus on. Totally get it. I've tried melatonin, but that just makes me feel awful. And like I'm hungover the next day. We'll talk about this. It doesn't help sleep anyway. I've tried changing my room around to make it different. And I have a nightlight so that when I wake through the night, I can quickly identify my surroundings. Love it. I feel so embarrassed that I have to have a nightlight in my 40s. Do you have any suggestions to help with sleep when it doesn't feel safe? Great question. And the crux of this is going to be trauma processing because you said growing up your bedroom, you know, you were never safe and your bedroom was not a safe place. And I would assume that's probably due to sexual abuse or physical abuse or some kind of abuse, but usually it's night times, you know, when sexual abuse happens. And so we didn't feel safe. That's okay. Processing through that will alleviate that. So that's really the goal. But I love the nightlight. There's no shame in that. I'm also afraid of the dark, so don't judge yourself. And I, my, it's funny, when I was first reading this question before I got to the nightlight part, I was like, maybe you should sleep with your light on. You could put an eye mask on and then you can easily and quickly lift it up and look around and see everything. So a nightlight's a great, great way to take some of that fear away. So be patient with yourself. Now, melatonin is not good, I learned. Um, I should probably say this more frequently. I've talked about it a little bit, but not a ton. Melatonin is obviously, it's a hormone that our body creates that helps us fall asleep, but to give it to yourself is usually too high of a dose and the hangover effect is intense. And we find magnesium L-theranate, I'm probably saying it wrong, magnesium's better, as well as things like L-theanine. You should talk to your doctor before you take any supplements or anything like that, but we find those to be more effective. And rituals around bedtime can be helpful. Uh, listening to having music playing or some uh, mindfulness podcast or some white noise can sometimes help. Um, I would encourage you to not get on social media and doom scroll and instead have another healthier ritual, something like uh, journaling about the things you're grateful for, or even because it's about safety. Instead of trying to focus on making it safe, can we try to make it neutral? We can consider the things that are going okay in our life and things that make us feel like we're going to be okay. We maybe focus on a few of those things, maybe write them down in the morning and then repeat them and before bed. Maybe there's some, you know, uh, meditation, like guided meditations that we can do. 
maybe we can put, like I said, put on some music and stuff like that. There can be a lot of different ways for us to try to manage as we process through the trauma. And so my encouragement really is to find a therapist that you connect with. This could be talk therapy, EMDR, schema therapy, any type of therapy. It's more about the connection that you feel with your therapist and them being able um, and within their scope of their practice to help you process the trauma. Okay, because what you're going through is completely normal, unfortunately. Unfortunately, when we have trauma, especially when things have happened at night, we can not feel rested ever. We can feel like we're having panic attacks throughout and it's we're never able to go to sleep or stay asleep. And I also have had patients that do take sleeping pills prescribed by their doctors to assist with this as they process through the trauma. So that's another potential alternative. But I don't want you to ever wake up feeling scared. And especially if you take a sleeping pill, I don't want that to affect you in any kind of way either. So if you feel able, you can bring a supportive person, but when you go to see the doctor, at least let them know why the sleep is disturbed and why it's not working so that we ensure that they don't give you something that you could wake up on and your body could still be in, you know, like the sleep paralysis and that could be more traumatizing. But along with, so therapy with a trauma specialist, stop taking the melatonin, which it sounds like it's not working anyway. Um, talk to your doctor, maybe get some sleep aid. I think that having a ritual at nighttime around like, uh, you know, feeling grateful, things that are okay is going to really, really help you. So let's start there and keep me posted. Okay. Thank you so much for listening and watching. Thank you for sending in your questions. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time.